grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. This is Jane and today I will be speaking to David Bowl about the relationship between adoption and addiction. David is an adoptee from the USA who is a clinical substance abuse counsellor, master addiction counsellor, and currently works as an independent addiction and recovery consultant. David is a board member and addiction recovery consultant to the National Association of Adoptees and Parents. In 2018, David published a book titled Parallel Universes, which won an excellence award in the category of addiction and recovery. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Jane. I'm honored to be here. That's great. We're honored to have you here. Um, perhaps we can jump straight into this topic since it is a big one. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we could begin by actually defining for people what addiction actually means. Of course, of course. Great idea. Um, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, quote, Addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances uh, or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences, end quote. (laughs) And one theme that stood out for me when I was listening to Kevin's story in the previous episode was the concept of shame. In the literature we know as the seven core issues of adoption, one of the core issues discussed, which is inherent in the adoption experience, is shame. And this is for all parties affected by adoption. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how this might relate to the experience of addiction. Mm -hmm. Well, there certainly is a connection between shame and addiction. Um, One of the many things that uh, both adoption and addiction have in common with shame is that it's very complex. Uh, which means that it might derive from any number of different sources. It could be f- come from a traumatic childhood experience, like some type of adoption separation. Could come from one's living environment. For example, the case of a relinquishing, finding it difficult to attach to caregivers. It could derive from loss and trauma, such as that experienced by both adoptees and parents who have lost a child to adoption. And or it could come from societal pressures of being expected to fill certain roles and expectations or, or any other number of life experiences. So that's what makes it complex. And, and shame, as a result, shame brings about many feelings. Um, and the list is not exhausted, but it can cause isolation and loneliness, guilt, depression, confusion regret, anxiety, and inadequacy, among others. And, and to top it off, shame is really quite insidious. It, it can manifest in one's life without a person knowing or giving it permission to do so. 
And many people who experience those effects of shame oftentimes don't know why they feel the way that they do. And which makes it very complex and very confusing. But furthermore, they might not even realize how significantly these chronic and toxic feelings of shame are impacting just about everything in their current day lives. So when someone feels shameful about themselves, they typically avoid finding and asking for help, which again is, is a problem with those who suffer from um, substance use and behavioral use disorders and addictions. This is, this is something they have in common. This can lead to maladaptive coping strategies, such as beginning to abuse alcohol or drugs or other forms of addiction, including behavioral addictions. Yeah, it makes sense that you mentioned the different types of addiction. So addiction can be behavioral as well as um, addiction to a substance. Um, it also, yeah, it also makes sense what you've said. Um, I'm aware adoptees, particularly those who have been to therapy, sometimes uncover a deep-seated sense of shame or worthlessness that is tied up in their experience of being separated from their parents as an infant or a child. Uh, such as a deep belief that maybe I wasn't good enough to keep. Children do tend to internalise the things that happen to them. We know that. And they might see these things deep down as being their fault. Um, even when on an intellectual level, it's clear that the reason for the adoption doesn't have anything to do with the child's worth. And we also know that for parents who have lost a child to adoption, they too report feeling shame perhaps around the pregnancy itself in the first place, having conceived the child out of marriage, outside of marriage at an era when that was frowned upon, or later even their decision for their child to be adopted, even if in truth they didn't have an option. Um, David, what else can you tell us about the relationship between adoption, loss and trauma and addiction? Uh, wow, that's a lot. Thank you, Jane, for teeing that up because those are, are very important. So I'm going to expand on what you've uh, just said and by talking about a couple of things. The, the, you made reference to uh, seven core issues before, and there's a book written by Sharon Rocha and Alan, uh, Alison Davis-Maxson called The Seven Core Issues in Adoption and Permanency, a comprehensive guide to promoting understanding and healing and adoption, foster care, kinship, families, and third-party reproduction. And, and the authors emphasize the, the, the link and that relinquishment trauma can unquestionably result in both shame and anxiety, and they can manifest themselves throughout one's lifetime. It's not just mm -hmm. a one-time thing. So both that shame and anxiety underpin addiction. That is, they predispose one to addiction. So mm -hmm. if we think about relinquishes, at least first, specifically, they, they oftentimes report some core messages that they received early on, such as, I don't have any value because I was given up by my mother, or I should not show people who I really am because they're going to see how deeply flawed I am, or, or, or I have to hide my true feelings because I'll be viewed as being ungrateful or disrespectful if I try to process aloud what I'm thinking and feeling, or perhaps that being myself simply is just not okay. It didn't work that first time around when I was given up for adoption, so now I know not to repeat that mistake again. Mm -hmm. And the research talks about this very, very specifically. Many studies have shown that adoptees are overly represented in mental health and addiction care settings. Mm -hmm. Adopted adults, and I can offer citations for these, have higher degrees of mental health issues and are more likely to receive counseling. Adopted persons have increased risk of substance use disorders in their lifetimes, um, two to four times that of the general population. And of course, although adopted persons often lead similar lives to non-adopted persons, 
they experience circumstances needing to be overcome. Those seven core issues as identified or simply seen as loss, grief, identity development, self-esteem, lack of information about medical background. And this includes, of course, medical um, predispositions to both mental health and addiction. And it often takes a really long time and maybe requires some peer supports and or therapy by adoption competent therapists to work through these messages that have become attached to the very core beliefs of that relinquishing and, and those affected by relinquishment. Yeah, absolutely. And I noticed, David, I'm putting you a little bit on the spot here, but I noticed, um, so in Australia, we, we pretty much, I think the preferred language that's come out of some studies is um, calling what I probably in the past would have said an adoptee, calling them an adopted person. But I notice you also use the term relinquishee. Um, Where's, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about that to help me understand? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the the first time I heard the term relinquishee, it was mentioned in a presentation by a a UK therapist by the name of Paul Sunderland. And I'll talk Mm -hmm. about him later and hopefully we can provide some links uh, on an ongoing basis. And he said it, to him and to those that he treated, it was very important to, um, to identify that, that experience of being relinquished because yeah. it's oftentimes in addition to being adopted, they're two mm. separate events. And if we're trying to grieve appropriately or understand appropriately what the effects of those events are, although society doesn't see them as separate things, yeah. the individuals affected by it, including family members, oftentimes do well by, by seeing them differently. Mm. So I, I, I lead with being in a relinquishee because I was. I was relinquished by my mother. Yeah. There were circumstances that related to it. I've come to understand much about it, but I was also later adopted. And those are two separate mm-hmm. distinct events. Wow. Yeah. Before I get back on, on topic, I think that's a really good point because I think here also in Australia, uh, people have a hard time understanding why an adopted person might have experienced trauma, particularly if their experience in their adoptive family was a positive one. So the fact that there's trauma underlying that, um, we often try to brainstorm and think about how can we get this point across more easily. So I think that's actually a really good point. And I guess coming back to what you were discussing, for now I'll keep using the term adopted <laughs> people, but in a large-scale a large scale Australian study conducted by the Australian Institute of Family Studies, um, they surveyed adopted people, about 800-plus of them, and this was explored in an episode earlier in the year, March 24, if, if people want to listen to that one. Um, but this study also found that as well as the points that you've mentioned about adopted people, that mothers who'd lost a child to adoption were also far more likely to experience mental health conditions, particularly in relation to trauma, anxiety and depression symptoms when compared to the general population. And they also cited complex feelings of shame, guilt, loss. Um, And some of the themes from the mothers who participated in this study, and there were about 505 mothers, Um, was feeling like they're surviving in life but not necessarily living, keeping the adoption of their child a secret and therefore feeling like they're living a double life, anger, such as anger at their own parents for lack of support or anger at society, difficulties in current relationships, a pervasive sense of loss, and also feeling blamed or at fault for the loss of their child, which could lead to self-blame. 
We will provide a link to both the seven core issues of adoption in the new book that you mentioned, as well as the AOFS study. Um, but given these underlying issues are there, I'm actually wondering about the term that I hear um, quite a bit being used in the context of addiction, which is self-medicating. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about what is meant by this term. Certainly. Um, the the, the self-medication theory of addiction posits that people who use substances like alcohol or drugs or perhaps other addictive behaviors, such as eating or shopping or gambling, um, and they do this not to seek pleasure, not to seek euphoria, which is the assumption that society makes about why people are using chemicals, but to relieve pain, that dysphoria. So in other words, they try to change or quote unquote medicate or treat those painful symptoms of uncomfortable emotional states that they have oftentimes through a process of numbing. And they numb these very active thoughts and emotions with chemicals of those compulsive behaviors. Uh -huh. So as it relates to our discussion about shame, when someone experiences that inherent shame, like the shame carried by those affected by adoption, they hold within themselves an immense burden. And they might turn to drugs or alcohol to alleviate or medicate that burden. And mm -hmm. these substances can become their own entirely new sense of shame, right? It starts a spiral. So using these chemicals can lead to a belief that a person is a failure because they can't control their substance use. Or it might, they might have a belief that these uh, negative consequences and behaviors that stem from this unhealthy substance use make them inferior or unworthy. Mm -hmm. So medicating these feelings of shame with drugs or alcohol may in fact numb oneself to those pervasive thoughts and feelings, yet they fail to identify and deal with the origins of, of that unhealthy use. Why is that mm -hmm. use happening? And as mm -hmm. a result, what happens instead of decreasing shame increases in a, in a never ending cycle and it reinforces its influence on current and future behavior because one mm -hmm. never comes out of that perception, that perceptive cycle of shame. And, and this is something I can speak of personally as well. I have experience with someone with this as someone who has relinquished and adopted and as someone mm -hmm. who, who struggled with both alcohol use disorder and has recovered. And, and my trajectory was, was similar to that of Kevin Barheit and other relinquishes because mm -hmm. I, I felt very similarly. Growing up, I, I always felt different. I didn't feel like mm -hmm. I belonged and that I lacked the very instructions to you know, live life on life's terms, even though I mm -hmm. thought everyone else knew what they were doing. I certainly didn't. I struggled with identity and not really knowing who I was, in part mm -hmm. because I didn't have some of those biological markers to draw from and I didn't have specific information about genetic relatives. Mm -hmm. And I would clinically say that I suffered from what what is uh, called an identity crisis. And this was a term that was coined by Eric Erickson, a German psychologist, who, by the way, was also adopted. <laughs> yeah. And this identity crisis meant that I failed to achieve this healthy ego strength or a healthy self-identity during my adolescence, um, whereby I struggled with relational issues, relationship issues like attachment and had no idea who to trust or how to trust, including myself. And I, and I agonized, mm -hmm. admittedly. I, I felt alone, isolated, misunderstood, and at times I didn't even have a vocabulary to describe these things, let alone mm. to trust anyone enough to talk with them about this and talk about shame, right? This goes right into our shame discussion. I, mm -hmm. I call this the trifecta of self-conscious mm -hmm. emotions that was in play, those feelings of abandonment, betrayal, and shame that are so overwhelming to so many people in the adoption constellation. Mm -hmm. and, and knowing what I know today, I, I'd characterize all of this experience as dislocation. It, it was a disruption. It was a developmental interruption. It was a complex type trauma where I was separated from reality and relationships and I developed mm -hmm. coping mechanisms, unhealthy coping mechanisms to avoid or med medicate the pain. 
And, and, and as I went through this process, you know, something happened to me that happens to so many others. I, I stumbled upon alcohol in my case as a solution to all those problems that I couldn't even quantify at the time. I mm-hmm. medicated those painful, very uncomfortable self-conscious emotions with alcohol. And a couple of things I'd say about that. Many young people today, this is it's not extraordinary. Many young people report that alcohol or other drugs provide a social lubricant. They get rid of that social discomfort that some people have in their teen years. And that was certainly true for me, but it was more than that. You know, I, I felt like with that first drink that I had found a connection that I hadn't wow. previously had. And I felt like the people that I was drinking with had found a deeper level of connection than anyone could have. Hmm. Furthermore, professionals suggest that people who experience addiction seeks in their, their psychosocial or their personal development the moment they begin using drugs or alcohol in addictive hmm. ways. So looking back on the time when I took that first drink at age 13, I can now say that I was probably immediately drinking alcoholically. I immediately was hmm. addicted to alcohol because it was an ideal medicine for what ailed me. It altered my perceptions, that perception hmm. of being different and lonely and everything else. And it changed my reality. But unfortunately, like some medications that have side effects, after many years, that progressive nature of alcohol addiction caught up with me. And what was once what one might call a magic elixir, it became um, not a medicine anymore. It became a poison. And it went mm. from being a solution to problems to being a bigger problem than anything that preceded it. And that doesn't happen overnight, oftentimes with, with, with drugs or behaviors, but sometimes it can be very abrupt. In my case, it was not. Um, but I was seeking relief and that because something was wrong with me because I was relinquished. Right. And, and this was further confirmed because now something's wrong with me because I can't stop drinking. Wow. Yep. And what really just stood out for me with what you just said, and I grabbed my highlighter <laughs> um, was when you used the term separated from reality, that you were separated from reality when the relinquishment happened and moving forward from that. And I just think that's such an accurate way to describe how an adoptee feels when they're adopted and before they've been able to find out anything about their biological and genetic heritage because, mm. yeah, I don't have words for it. I've, you know, I struggle to ever describe to someone that's not adopted how that feels and I think mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense and I can see how then finding that numbing or what you describe would just um help you to cope with that mm-hmm. that rea- that well dislocation from reality um mm-hmm. it sounds like at some point you were able to reach a place of insight around some of your core beliefs and perhaps mm-hmm. how alcohol was affecting your life in negative ways not only the positive ones of relieving the burden mm-hmm. and in the previous episode we hear kevin use the term my treasures to refer to people in his life, friends and professionals, who had a positive influence, whether it was by giving him hope, helping him build a greater sense of self-worth, and also who simply just did not judge him. I'm wondering what small things that we, whether we're professionals or not, and the people listening, can do to, to be helpful if we do know somebody who we feel is struggling with an addiction. Mm-hmm. Great question, Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, Several things come to mind, of course. First, mm-hmm. p- please become more aware and get educated. That's the, the one thing that we can all do in this day and age where we have access to information. So please try to understand the, the behavioral and physical and environmental signs of 
unhealthy mm-hmm. substance use. And keep in mind, it's not necessarily what the media likes to scare us with. You know, addiction includes both substances and activities, such mm-hmm. as sex and gambling, as well as some unhealthy drugs and other chemicals. Addiction does, of course, lead to substantial harm, but it, it leads to harm to ourselves and others. And likewise, um, Addiction is repeated despite the fact that harm is caused to self and others, which doesn't make a lot of sense um, mm. to someone looking in from the outside. Wouldn't someone with a, who's of their right mind stop that if they knew it was harming others? But, mm. but again, it's that insidious nature of addiction. It, it, it continues because it is or was pleasurable and or valuable. It, it produces mm. some type of payoff like pain relief. So yeah. please get more educated and become more aware. Secondly, don't hesitate to reach out and discuss this with the individual. Sometimes they are um, unaware that they really have a problem and your perspective sometimes can be quite enlightening and helpful to someone who's mm-hmm. not really seeing things as they are. In my case, right, with my, my addiction mm-hmm. and my separation might have led to that dislocation. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the point. I, I, the insidious nature of addiction crept into my life from, from the inside, but from the outside, people were seeing that there were problems. So talk, talk to individuals mm-hmm. that you're comfortable with about what you see and why you're concerned. It, it, it can be very helpful without getting to the intervention level. Just just some reflection is is, is great. Let them know that you're there for them for, for both support and accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing that might be able to happen is that um, one might be able to research some resources that might be available locally or nationally to that mm-hmm. person for ongoing investigation or support or maybe even intervention or perhaps treatment. Mm-hmm. Fourth, um, there are skills that we can all use to take care of ourselves. And that old adage used on airliners, put your oxygen mask on, holds very true in this case, because if we don't take care of ourselves, we can experience burnout and stress and fatigue, as well as reduce mental effectiveness, health problems, anxiety, ongoing and building frustration and inability to sleep and a myriad of other consequences. Of course, mm-hmm. these these symptoms do not help us to help anyone else if we can't take care of our own selves. So those would be, I think, the, the main list. In addition, mm-hmm. if you're very curious, there, there is some expanding science around these issues. It's, mm-hmm. it's no longer about tough love anymore. There is science that shows there are ways specifically to help people in, in their addictions. And if you want to be very pro- proactive, there is a, an evidence-based practice called Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And the acronym is CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T. Mm-hmm. And these are evidence-based strategies for helping individuals to change and to feel better about themselves rather than pushing them further into that shame. So they're particularly mm-hmm. useful to the, uh, the, the community that we're discussing here. And CRAFT works to, the, uh, to affect the loved one's behavior by changing the ways we interact with him or her rather than mm-hmm. punishing or, or scolding or distancing we're, mm-hmm. we're offering, um, I, I wouldn't call them rewards necessarily, although that term is used, but encouragement for behaviors that are healthier and attitudes mm-hmm. that are healthier. And Sounds there's a good. real great book. It, it is, it is. There's mm-hmm. one book in particular called Get Your Loved One Sober, Alternatives to Nagging, Pleading and Threatening, which <laughs> is something many people do after having been worn down by that family disease of addiction. And it's written mm-hmm. by Robert J. Myers and Brenda L. Wolf. And I've worked with that book. I've worked about these concepts. I help people work through that book. And I've written some manuals to help them to Mm -hmm. uh, employ the strategies there with their own book. Very useful. Wow, that sounds great. And we'll certainly post links to all of these resources you've mentioned in our podcast notes. Yep, people can have a look further. And 
you know, I also noticed in the previous episode that by the same token, Kevin also identifies that in order for real change to occur, at some point he needed to come to terms with helping himself in order to heal as well. What small steps could somebody take right now if they were listening to this and thought that they might be struggling with an addiction? Another great question, Jane. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. Firstly, if anyone listening to this podcast feels like they're in an emergency situation or are simply not coping, they should, of course, contact emergency services in their area or research appropriate mental health and or addiction support services. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there are ways that you may be able to help yourself beyond that. Uh, and, and some of them are very reflective. Consider, if you're able to, whether or not your addiction is actually having detrimental impacts on your life or you're using, if, if you can't come to terms with the word addiction, ask yourself, um, am I using this substance or this behavior in an unhealthy manner? And look at that profers, uh, professionally and personally and, and consider gaining perspective from others. Before we had talked about offering this perspective as a loved one, consider going to family, friends, or trusted professionals and or experts in the addiction field and elsewhere so that you don't have to wonder anymore. You know, stop stop mm. thinking, oh boy, do I have a problem or don't I have a problem? Well, there are experts that are immediately available in this day and age. Please don't hesitate to reach out to them. And mm-hmm. of course, the, the, the ultimate questions are, have you, have you ever hidden your behavior or have you repeatedly, but maybe unsuccessfully tried to stop drinking or using on your own? Those are usually criteria for identifying a problem that needs to be addressed. And there are some very um, simple evidence-based questionnaires out there. One of them is the CAGE questionnaire, C-A-G-E is the acronym. And again, mm-hmm. Jane, I, I, if you could provide a link to that and the podcast yeah. notes, that would be very helpful for someone yep. to take a look at. Absolutely, we will do that. And I'm wondering, with respect to healing from an addiction, is there a typical trajectory that people might follow or is the journey unique to each individual? Excellent um, question and excellent thoughts because we get uh, disruptive and conflicting uh, messages from the media and in relationships mm-hmm. that we have. So the, the the direct answer is that there are many routes or paths to healing and recovery. Mm-hmm. There's not just one, one, one simple path. <clears throat> People typically choose these pathways based on their cultural values, their socioeconomic status, maybe their psychological and behavioral needs, and certainly the nature of their substance use disorder, where it is on a spectrum of from moderate to severe and what type of chemical and and effects it might have on on their daily life. And Mm -hmm. despite the fact that there are many routes and differences in individual healing, there's certainly some overriding theories of recovery that people have in common. And in my world, I use the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration's definition of recovery because I think it provides a very useful construct for understanding this very notion. What does that look like? So they say that recovery is, quote, a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential, end quote. Mm. So three major major parts mm. that are very straightforward. Improve the health and wellness, living a self-directed life, and reaching their full potential, mm. right? And, and what that tells me is that recovery goes beyond simply the remission of symptoms, and it mm-hmm. includes positive changes in, in a whole person and in a whole life. So in this regard, abstinence, as we're known to think of recovery, though often necessary, is not always sufficient to define recovery. There's more to life than just being sober and clean. Mm-hmm. So the remission from that substance use disorder can take different routes and different paths, and it's not linear, and it take, could take time, maybe years mm. sometimes, multiple episodes of treatment, 
It can involve recovery support specialists and other types of peer support and any other things. So Hmm. having available to anyone approaching this, a range of support is helpful, including Hmm. professional peer support, mutual aid, community-based support, hospital-based support, support maybe within an education system, housing and vocational support, and any other ways we can get people to to enhance those three characteristics of recovery. Hmm. I think that's a really great point because I think that's true of many things, you know, even any real mental health uh, issues and just coping with adoption in life. Uh, having a range of support can be so important in those different settings. Um, mm-hmm. And we do know in adoption that peer support is very valuable. And you've just highlighted this as well, um, that this is the same as true for those affected by addiction. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you could tell us a bit more about this and how this can be beneficial. Absolutely. So if we're defining peer support, as that process of giving and receiving non-professional and non-clinical assistance that comes from individuals who have similar conditions or circumstances to achieve long-term recovery from whether it be psychiatric, alcohol, and or other drug-related problems, then yes, absolutely. This, this is a large part of addiction recovery, and it is a support system that is available to all generally from wherever you are, and even more particularly, despite the fact that our COVID world has produced some real challenges, it has opened up those recovery supports because of the virtual nature of some of them in this day and age. So they are there. So in this instance, peer support groups are are where people voluntarily get together and they receive and provide support by validating one another and sharing their knowledge experiences. And and in my opinion, most importantly, solutions to challenges that they faced. And of course, if we're talking about peer support, is, that's been defined as the recently or newly emerging version of recovery management support that's evidence-based and it's a practice for individuals with mental health conditions or challenges, of course, the answer is the same. That there's increasing evidence that shows that professional peer support provided by trained peer support specialists, and of course, there are other similarly named professionals that are credentialed by their lived experience and by their on-the-job training, This peer support is very effective in helping people to heal and to recover. And in addition to that, the evidence shows that peer support lowers the overall cost of mental health services by reducing rehospitalization rates and days spent in services. It improves the quality of life. It increases and improves engagement with services, and it increases whole health and self-management. And darned if that doesn't mirror the definition of recovery that we just illustrated earlier. Absolutely, because it sounds as well, it's, it's also about connection, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned connection way back, um, and if people have found that through an addiction, this sort of might actually offer a different way. And I'm aware, looking at your website, that you run a group specifically for adopted people who also struggle with addiction. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about this and any other similar support that you're aware of. Yes, and I'm excited to do this because uh, Mm. it hasn't been long that such groups have existed. It's only been the last year or so that these combined groups supporting individuals in the the adoption consolation and people with experience with, whether they're experiencing themselves or loved ones with addiction, have have cropped up. So I, for example, I facilitate a group called Adoptee Paths to Recovery, which is a virtual meeting. Mm sponsored by the National Association of Adoptees and Parents. We meet on Tuesday evenings, Eastern time. And we Mm -hmm. talk about those things I mentioned earlier. We talk about validating one another, sharing our experiences and offering solutions in a social setting Mm. to to help people to move through some difficult obstacles. 
In addition to that, there's an Adoptees and Addiction group um, that has a webpage and they host a, a meeting on Saturday afternoon specific time for those people who have uh, been involved in 12-step recovery. This is particularly helpful because their formats are very similar to those 12-step recovery groups. Mm -hmm. and, and finally, there's a group called Adoptees in Recovery, and they're easiest found on Facebook. They're affiliated with Adoptees Connect, which is mm -hmm. a growing organization of support for adoptees. So those are some virtual groups in this day and mm -hmm. age that one can tap into. In addition, if I would suggest that anyone who's interested in this topic go and take a look at um, a lecture by Paul Sunderland. And I re referred to the UK therapist earlier in our talk. It's titled Adoption and Addiction, Remembered, Not Recalled, easily mm -hmm. findable on YouTube. It is remarkable in the awareness mm -hmm. that we'll offer to some people who are trying to understand this intersection between the two. And finally, I, I often speak and write about the intersection of relinquishment and addiction. I, I have a blog. Um, mm -hmm. I have several videos about the topic that I've done. Yeah. Um, and done interviews that are in the news and press section. And I'd invite anyone to explore those if they're so inclined. Absolutely. We'll most certainly link to your website, which contains the blog and the news and the information, information about your book as well. Um, definitely Paul Sunderland. I would recommend that people check that out. And, um, and the groups you mentioned, obviously, are, um, the time zones you mentioned are US time zones, but people can work out if those work for them, uh, if they're here in Australia. And I think you mentioned to me off air, David, that your group, um, certainly people are welcome um, even if they're in other countries. Is that correct? Absolutely. Actually, we do, without yeah. divulging any um, or violating any confidentiality, we do have people joining us for many different mm. time zones around the world. Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, thank you again so much for all of your knowledge and experience that you've shared with us today. I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add, but or anything even you'd like to say about your book maybe um, because reading as well and reading other people's stories can be really beneficial as well. But obviously, well, I, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. And thank you for the opportunity. And I, I'll, I'll tell a brief story and hopefully mm. some in the audience will engage with this. My my journey out of the fog is, as the term is sometimes used, people coming out of that adoption fog. And my fog was, I didn't want to know anything. I didn't want to have mm -hmm. anything to do with the people who relinquished me. I didn't, I didn't want to know. I just wanted to, to make it on my own. And I, boy, I was going to show the world. But ironically, my entry out of that came from the book, The Girls Who Went Away by Ann mm. Fessler. It's a book mm -hmm. that talks about the adoption world, particularly in the United States from the 1940s mm -hmm. to 1973, Roe yep. versus Wade, and what happened. And I read that book. And for the first time in my life, I actually was able to feel deep empathy, not only for those women, mm. but the context around the time that my mother, my mother relinquished me. And of course, yeah. that shed a whole lot of, um, I guess, misguided blame or misguided mm -hmm. misunderstanding. And it really entered the, my life in a significant way. So I have worked very hard to continue to, to learn mm. from all people in the adoption community, not just adoptees who have experiences yeah. that are vital, but there are others as well. And the reason I say that is I wrote a book about my experiences in this journey, not just the journey of coming out of the fog, but this, this, this developmental interruption that I thought that I had when I was growing up in adolescence and how I medicated it and how it played out in my life and how I had to extricate myself from it. And, and ultimately, since I did, how the world looks like a wonderful, robust, realistic place. And, mm. and um, I, I've, I've received a great deal of feedback from it. And mm -hmm. I suspected at the beginning, it was very specific. I thought maybe 
I was reaching a very unique audience who, who were those individuals experiencing addiction who were also relinquished and had that experience as well. Yet I have found that uh, there are many different types of people reading the book and responding and the, the, uh, an audience just as large as adoptees who have read this are mm-hmm. um, mothers, either relinquishing wow. mothers or adoptive mothers. And ultimately, if I can paraphrase a very uh, a varied message, it, it's basically, oh my gosh, you've put into language mm-hmm. um, things that we couldn't even quantify and, and wow, maybe are, are, are being able to explain. And I say, you know, there is no higher praise than that because that's exactly right. what my journey is about. I'm trying to quantify mm. that, which was not not quantifiable before because of whatever that was, developmental interruption, yeah. missing information, my derailing the process by unhealthily using alcohol and nicotine, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but that has been the process. So I would encourage anyone who's looking for some insights into that intersection and what it might mean yeah. practically for an individual, whether it be the one suffering from or one experiencing it in a loved one or a colleague or a friend, um, there has been uh, significant um, positive feedback in that regard. And I would encourage you to do that. And I, I hope you find benefit from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will read it myself as well, which I haven't done yet. So oh, excellent. Um, yeah, excellent. we'll post a link to it. And yeah, I think we can learn so much from reading other people's stories. Well, listening, reading, people have different preferences, but Agreed. it's great well, I, to I, mention I, that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I do. I, 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 yeah. I am a, a voracious consumer of podcasts <laughs> and reading and books. And, yeah. um, and and again, that's the day and age that we're in. Even 10 years ago, adopts memoirs, whether they mm. were printed or, or digital, were not highly available. There were only a, a limited right. few. Now, now they, that, that, that field has proliferated and we um, have access to lots of information we didn't have before. And yeah, ultimately, right, you said, yeah. well, what, what would be my big message? Well, you know, if I had yeah. a big message, I'd be traveling the world solving all these problems but I guess what my my (laughs) encouragement to everybody would be is is now is the greatest time we've ever been in we are so much more aware so much more Mm -hmm. understanding so much more empathetic and there's so many more resources to address these issues as well as both professionals and laypersons alike being more aware of of how these things are combining and Mm -hmm. and how they are possibly playing out in our lives going forward jump in. If you don't know where to go, jump into your, your local or your regional or your or your national organization, such as yours or other organizations. Yeah. There are resources there that, that have decades and decades and decades of not only experience and expertise, but wisdom that we can bear so to, to make our lives better. And, and please don't, don't hesitate, jump right in. There's lots out there for yeah. all of us. That's, I think that's such a good point you make because I remember being a young adult, so say only maybe 10 years ago and, and just craving more information. But it was really tough um, to even get your hands on a book, um, even a really obvious one, like maybe one of Nancy Verrier's books, The Primal Wound. It was a real struggle to even get a copy of it. So mm. I think you're right. There's so many resources out there. It doesn't matter, um, you know, which angle you're coming from. Um, just get out there and explore things and yeah again we're just you know really grateful for your time we appreciate your expertise as someone not only with lived experience but with years of professional experience in the field and qualifications behind you so thank you again for talking to us today it's my pleasure and thank you for providing the forum for such an essential dialogue i appreciate it thank you thanks for listening to the adopt perspective podcast If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com 
and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.